You know, the world will often use the term God, right? Uh, we, we believe in God, we follow God, and, and God a lot of times becomes used as a very ambiguous, a very generic type of person. And when people use that phrase, God, I think a lot of times what I hear is we're speaking about somebody who is all loving, which is true, but tends to live in a world where this God lets me do what I want, when I want, whenever I want. And we have a very warped uh, and incorrect perception of who God actually is. But I think something happens, something, something changes on our view of God when we begin to look at the condition of our own human heart. That when we begin to see ourselves as sinners, when we, we understand that we are flawed human beings, I, I think it's that moment where we don't craft our own version of God anymore, but we really allow the God of the Bible to speak to us. And, and, and when we, we do that, we can look at a passage like Exodus 34, and this is a passage that I'm going to tell you to, to bookmark, to, to make a note of, to highlight, because we're going to come back to this. But in Exodus 34, what, when Moses is there and, and he's, he's basically saying, God, I, I want to see you. He says, and he passed in front of me proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. That when we understand our human heart, we can look at that and appreciate and value the multifaceted character of who God ultimately is. And I want us to understand that when it says in there that God is punishing the children for the sins of their parents, it's not like, well, your dad sinned, so I'm going to punish you. Uh, the sense is, is that if you continue in the sins of your parents, you will face the same type of punishment. So we see these, these parts of God that, again, when we know who we are, become very rich and very deep to us. And so today we're going to look at the book of Judges. And I think when we're done going through the book of Judges, that should give us a very deep appreciation for who the character of God actually is. Now, we're going we're gonna to do a, a lot in the book of Judges. We're going to cover the entire book of Judges today, so we're going to do a lot of hopping around in it. But again, we've been walking through the story of the Bible. Uh, God has created man's sin. The Lord made a promise. He, he is there to redeem his people. He brought them uh, out of Egyptian slavery. They wandered the desert, and now they've come back home. And in that promise of coming back home, God said, I will give you the victory. I will give you victory over your enemies, but you need to make sure that you are not living among these people, that you drive them out. And so it's no surprise that as God's people get in, God gives victory and then they fail. And they begin to do the things that God told them not to do. And so God gave Moses to lead and then he gave Joshua to lead. And now God is going to give a series of judges to lead his people. 
So if we were to look in Judges chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 or verse 6, it really kind of lays out the outline for the rest of the book of Judges for us. It creates the pattern of what's going to happen. It gives a little snapshot of, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to show you a little story that is going to prove everything that's going on, and then I'm going to come back to the beginning in this. And so in Judges chapter 1, after the death of Joshua, it gives a story about the tribe of Judah and how Judah fails to drive out their enemies, just like God called them to do. And then after that little story about the tribe of Judah, it pretty much goes on in these passages to just list all of the other tribes that all of the other tribes have done the same thing. They failed to drive out their enemies. Uh, and again, this is a carryover from the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua. Remember, he says, you're going to go in, don't intermarry with them, destroy their idols, don't make treaties with them, because they will turn your hearts away from me. So, so God lays this out, and you are to totally destroy them. And we see in the book of Judges, they're not doing that. So in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochum. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So again, he just reminds them, he says, look, you, you disobeyed, you sinned. And here are the consequences. Okay, they're, they're going to be a thorn in your side as we continue to move forward. Jumping up to verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, after that, the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what it is he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed them and worshiped the various gods of the people around them. And they provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders and plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around them who were no longer able to resist. And when Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. So he says, look, you guys failed to pass on the truth. We had another generation that knew nothing about ye, And they began to worship other gods. And because of this, I turned you over to your enemies. They're going to punish you. They're going to terrorize you. They're going to attack you and destroy you. And then he continues in verse 16, where he talks about how he's going to raise up judges to save them. Because in their, in their misery, they cry out to God, God, save me. God, save me. And so God sends a judge who deals with their enemies and the people are saved and they rejoice and then after they rejoice and that judge leaves and he dies, they fall back into their own sin. And then the cycle and the pattern continues again and again and again through the book of Judges. And when we get to verse, uh, chapter 3 of verse 5 and 6, it says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their God. Right? God gets angry, and he punishes them, and he says, listen, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I told you what I wanted, and you failed, and I'm going to leave these people here. Now they're going to be a test for you. And remember when they were in uh, the, 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 the desert in Exodus 15 through 17? Remember the testing? God said, this is for your benefit because I want to expose what is in your heart, the corruption and the sin that exists. I know what you're going to do, but I'm putting a test out there for you to see that. And the test is these people are going to stay and, and you fail and you live among them and you worship their gods and you marry off your sons and daughters to them. Again, everything that I asked you to do, you're not doing. And so this lays out the overarching premise for the book of Judges. And so every series of stories that we have in the book of Judges is now overlaid by what we just read in chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 3. Okay, so we got to keep that in mind. So now all we have is individual stories of these judges, which has already been said. I've already given you the framework for this. So just to kind of quickly go through some of these, in Judges chapters 3 to 5, the people do evil. God rages up Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah, and everything goes well. The judges show up. The judges do their job. They get rid of the enemies. Israel is saved. But then we have this long story about Gideon. And in chapters six through nine, it's about kind of this man who's kind of waffling and then eventually his son, Abimelech. And I know a lot of times we look at Gideon's story and all we think about is how Gideon with 300 men defeated the enemies. Well, there's a lot more to Gideon that we have to make sure that we understand and understand this properly. So God calls Gideon. And when he calls Gideon, he's literally threshing wheat in a wine press. So he's literally kind of ducking in and hiding, trying to have his food because he's afraid of the Midianites. And God shows up and he says, hey, man, I'm going to use you. And Gideon's a little skeptical. He's a little apprehensive about what's going to happen. And in chapter six of verse 15, he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. And God says, Gideon, I, I will be with you. And Gideon's like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a sacrifice. I'm going to make an offering, and I want you to show up. So he makes an offering and a sacrifice, and the, and the fire comes down and consumes it. He's like, okay, I'm with you, Gideon. Do you see that? And then God says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to destroy your dad's idols. But Gideon's a little nervous. So he waits till nighttime because he doesn't want to do it when everyone's watching. And he goes and he destroys the idols. And in the morning is all the men wake up and they go, Gideon, they go, where's Gideon? We want Gideon. And Gideon is literally like hiding behind his dad while his dad is like, you can't have my son. And then God says, but I'm with you, Gideon. I'm going to lead you. And so Gideon says, all right, well, if that's the case, I want to make sure, God, that you're really telling me to do this. So here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lay out a fleece, and I want you to make the fleece damp. Put some dew on it and let the rest of the ground be dry. And so that happens, and then he wakes up the next day, and he sees it, and he goes, okay, one more time, Gideon, let's try this one more time. Okay, But this time, I want you to make the fleece dry, and I want you to make the rest of the ground wet. And God comes through and he says, do you believe me now, Gideon? 
And he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to attack the Mennonites. But you got too many men. So he whittles it down to 300 people. And he, he has 300 people and they go and they say, here's what you need. You need some clay pot and some torches. That's how you're going to win. And so when the Midians sleep, they, they, they destroy the clay pots and they have all their torches. And the Midians wake up in confusion and they kill each other. And Gideon wins the battle. And then in chapter 8 of verse 22, the, Gideon, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of the Midians. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a great statement by Gideon. I'm not going to rule over you. But that's not quite 100% what happens. Because here's what Gideon does say. He says, I'm not going to rule over you, but I want, I want to share the plunder. I want some of the gold. And he gets 1,700 shekels of gold, which is 43 pounds of gold. That is a king's ransom. And then after he defeats his enemies, you know what he does? He keeps all of the pendants, all of the jewelry, and all of the purple robes of the kings that he defeated. And if you don't know, purple was in a very expensive dye in ancient times, that the only people who could have purple were those of royalty. I don't want to be your king. Let God be your king. And then... He goes and he makes an ephod. If, if you don't know what an ephod was, it was kind of like a vest that the, the high priest would wear and it would have uh, the, the, the Israelite tribes on there and he'd have these stones where he could use it to discern God's will. And he says, I'm going to make an ephod and I put it in the town so all the people can worship it. And then at the very end, he has a son. And he has, actually has 70 sons. But the one he names Abimelech, which means my father is king. And when Gideon dies, Abimelech comes along and says, is it better to have 70 rulers or just one? And so Abimelech kills all of his brothers and he takes the throne and he leads Israel into a period of destruction. So I don't want to be your king, but I'm going to do all these things to show you that I really am your king. And so we have the story of Gideon. But again, it's, it's trying to paint a bigger picture for us. And then we come to chapters 10 through 12. And we have, again, these judges that we don't know anything about them, Tola, Jair, and Jephthah. But we get a little bit of a story of Jephthah. Jephthah's an outcast. His mother was a prostitute. And so he kind of lives off by himself. And the Israelites, again, are being conquered. And they show up to Jephthah and they say, we want you to lead us. We, we want you to take us into victory. And he's like, oh, wait. You who cast me out are now coming back to me, asking me to rule you. And I'm like, well, yeah. All right. He said, I, I will rule over you. But here's the condition. That after we win, I will get to lead you. And the Israelites say, fine. And so Jephthah makes a vow to God. And he says, God, if you give us victory over these enemies, if you give me victory, when I return home, the first thing that comes out of my house I will devote it to you and I will sacrifice it to you. And so Jephthah goes out and he wins 
And he comes home and out of his house comes his daughter. And he takes his daughter and he follows through on his vow and he sacrifices her. Now, let me just be very clear here. Just because this is in the Bible and it's a sacrifice does not mean that this honored God. Okay, this was not an appropriate vow that he made. Okay, so sometimes people look at this and go, look, your God is all about sacrificing children. No, that's not the case. This was a foolish vow that was made. But again, we're seeing a story of a bigger picture emerging. And then we get to chapter 12. And again, we have these other judges, but the main focus, again, is on Samson. And again, we all know Samson, right? We all know Samson for his strength, that he can't cut his hair. And that's what we tend to focus on. But here's what we need to understand here about Samson. I want you to go back at some point and read the story of Samson in a different light. Okay? He marries a Philistine woman. The Philistine are the Israelites' enemies. God had already told them, don't marry these other tribes, these other nations around you. He was very arrogant and he had an anger problem. And Samson ends up killing a lot of people even before he gets captured by the Philistines. But when he's, he's born, God comes to his mother and says he's going he's to take the Nazarene vow. He's going to take a vow where he's not to have fermented drinks. He's to, to follow me and he's not to cut his hair. Because not cutting his hair, in this case, particularly for Samson, is what's going to give him strength. So Samson is set apart and he's devoted to God. But he, he marries Delilah, a Philistine. She keeps harassing him about wanting to know his strength. And, and every time she thinks she has it, he breaks out and he kills the Philistines. And, and, and she gets more and more upset. And it's like, you don't love me. So he finally reveals the secret. He gets captured. They burn out his eyes and he's enslaved. And then over time, his hair grows back. And there's a gathering of all of the Philistines under the temple. And he stands between the pillars and he pushes them down and he crushes his enemy. And so God's people are saved, but this time at the expense of Samson's own life. And then we come to the last section, 17 through 21. Now, we don't, we don't even actually have any more judges at this point. What we have are kind of two separate stories that are interconnected. And we have a story about Micah. We have a story about a, a tribe of Dan. We have a story about a priest. And then we have a story about all of the tribes involved. And so what happens in 17 is there's a story about Micah. And, and Micah builds his own idols. And then he goes out and he finds a Levite. And he hires that Levite to be his priest. Okay. Now, just so you know, the Levites were designed to help the priest perform the offerings and take care of the temple things. The Levite does not have the right or the permission to function as a priest. But Micah pays him some money and he says, yeah, I'll do the job. So this tribe of Dan comes along and Dan is still trying to settle. And as it's wandering, looking to settle, it sees Micah and it's like, you know what, let's get, let's get Micah's stuff. And so it comes in and it steals Micah's stuff and it steals his priest. And then it, it attacks the, the town of Lashi. 
And in verse 27 of chapter 17, or in chapter 18, Laishis is referred to as a peaceful and unsuspecting people. So Micah makes his own gods, gets his own religious leader. Dan comes in, steals it, and then slaughters a bunch of innocent people and says, okay, here's where we're going to live. So that's the first part. And then the second story is about a, about a, a Levite. Again, I just explained who that was. He was a religious leader and he has a concubine. And, and they're looking to travel back home and they stop off in a town. And when they stop in the town, they can't find anywhere to stay. And an old man comes out and he says, you can't stay out here. Come, come spend time in, in my house. And so the men of the town show up and they say, we want the Levite. We essentially want to have our way with him. And the old man pleads, no, you can't do that. He's under my protection. Take my, take my daughter instead. And the Levite steps in and he says, here, take my concubine. And he sends his concubine out to all the men. And pretty much all night long, the men have their way with her. To the point that when they're done, she crawls home to the doorstep and dies. And you know what the Levite does the next morning? He opens the door. Kicks her a couple times. Let's go. Get up. It's time to leave. Realizes she's dead. Throws her on the back of the donkey. Takes her back home. Cuts up the body. Sends a piece to every tribe that exists and says, woe is me. Look what happened to me. Look what they did to me. And so all the tribes go, we got we to handle this. And so they get together and they attack the tribe of Dan. So the 11 tribes of Israel attack the one other tribe and they fight. Now, here's, here's kind of what becomes ironic about this. Is that after they destroy the tribe of Dan, they're like, guys, there's only like 600 men left. And they feel really bad. And, and, and they say in, in chapter 21 or verse 6, it says, The Israelites grieve for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel. So the, a religious guy has a concubine. He lets her be defiled. She dies. He cries out, woe is me. They fight the tribe of Dan, and then they feel bad that they destroyed the tribe of Dan. So they have a solution. Here's how we're going to settle this. Here's how we're going to make this right, because we don't want to see Dan disappear. You know, when we had our meeting, there was a town from the tribe of Gad that didn't show up. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go into that town and we're going to punish them for not showing up to this battle. And so they go in and they kill the men. And then they take 400 women. They're like, ah, we still need 200 more. We don't have enough women for the tribe of Dan. So they have another idea. They say, hey, look, there, there's a festival that's going to go on. When that festival is going on, the women like to get up there and they like to dance around. Dan, what you guys should do is go to that festival when the women are dancing. You run up and you seize the women. And that, that word seize is the idea of a lion prouncing on its prey in a vicious manner. Yeah, that's what, that's what you guys should do. Go steal the women from somewhere else. And so all the tribes go home and the book of Judges ends. So if we go back again, the people have sinned. God raises up judges to save them from their enemies. And again, it's a cycle. Their clothes get dirty. 
God washes, he rinses them off, he cleans them, and then they go out and they play in the mud again. And then God brings them back. And he, he washes them, he rinses them, and then they go out and they play in the mud again. And this is the cycle that continues over and over and over and over again. And here's what I want us to see, to really understand the depths of the sin that exists. And this is the way that the book of Judges is written, if you've never seen it this way. You've probably seen the, the picture of the downward spiral, right? You, it's, like a, it's like a vacuum, right? It's a whirlpool. It just... That when you walk through these stories, you start with four good judges. And then the next two that come along are okay. And then you get to Samson, who really is not a good guy at all to a point where you don't even have judges. And you have this individual, you have a tribe, you have a Levite, a religious leader, and all the tribes. Because what the author is trying to communicate is that the entirety of the book of Judges is about the nation of Israel being evil and corrupt. That every part of it is wrong. And the depravity just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And what does God do? God steps in and he saves them. So we're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. Why? I mean, the, these people should wallow in their sins. These people should be punished for what they're getting, right? Why does God keep saving them? Because all they do is continue to disobey God. And the more they disobey, the worse it gets. And they sin more and more and more. And then God keeps stepping in to save them. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because if we backtrack for a moment, what did we read earlier in Judges chapter 2? That after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. Guys, how does a generation grow up and not know who God is? How do they let that happen? And do you see how quickly humanity spirals out of control when they're not taught about who God is? So, so this, is a, this is a really important point. And this is not just parent to child. But this is for us as an entire church. We have the responsibility to pass on the faith. It doesn't matter what role you have, what title you have. It doesn't matter how old you are. You have a responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation. Because the moment you stop doing that, we spiral into destruction and death. And that goes for any kid sitting in here. You have a responsibility to the generation that is under you. No one is exempt from that. So we shouldn't be surprised where they end up. And towards the end of the book, it says this four different times. It said in those days... Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That's actually how the book ends. That is the very last passage. 
It's a recipe for disaster, right? So here's a piece that I, I think is also critical to, to know here. You know, when the books of the Bible are written, many of them are written after the fact, right? A lot of the history that we get is written years after the event have happened. And Judges is no different. It's not like the author is sitting down in the middle of Judges as everything's happening and he's just copying what's going on. What they actually, a lot of scholars think, is that, that the prophet Samuel is the one who writes the book of Judges. And if you don't know, Samuel is the one that when Israel desires a king, and this is what we're going to see in the weeks to come, when, when they, they want Saul, it's Samuel the prophet who's like, guys, this isn't going to go well for you. Don't, don't desire a king. Follow God. And the people are like, no, we want a king anyway. And so Samuel writes the book of Judges, and I believe that he writes the book of Judges as a warning to the kings. Because what they need to know is that Israel needs a godly king. That Israel needs godly rule in their lives. Because there are no good people in Israel. There are no good judges in Israel. There are no good kings in Israel. Quite frankly, in all of history, there's been no good people. There's been no good governments. There have been no good rulers. There have been no good kings. However you want to define it, in all of history, wherever you go, there is no one that is good. Because when we have no moral compass, we do whatever is right in our own eyes. And that's what the book of Romans tells us. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Our human nature is sin. We are prone to it. We are going to act that way. And if we are left to our own devices, we will become brutal murderers. And so because we, have a, we lack a good moral compass, because we fail, what does God do? God sent Moses, God sent Joshua, and God sent the judges. But all of them were flawed human beings who all had their own problems. And God said, what we need is the ultimate ruler. We need the, the ultimate one that's going to step in and is really going to save you. And so that's why we're given Jesus. We are given Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. And we are given the Holy Spirit to rule our hearts. So when I think about today's message, I really look at this as actually a message of praise. Because as we reflect on judges and we reflect on the sins of the Israelites that were committed, God continues to forgive and redeem his people, does he not? Even when they don't deserve it. And the same is true for us. That we are a spiraling mess of sin. Despite how much we have done, Despite how bad we are, God continues to step in and he saves us. So instead of praying, we're, we're going to end this way. Okay, we're going to do something a little bit different.
I'm going to ask you all to stand right now. Go ahead and stand up. Worship team, you guys can come forward. Go ahead and stand. Worship team, come on up. You guys can get yourselves ready. But we're, we're going to read Exodus chapter 34 together. We're going to read this together. And again, remember, this is how I started. And again, I, I would encourage you, memorize this verse. And if you can't memorize it, at least mentally bookmark this passage. And before we read it, I, I, wanna, I just want to talk about this for a second here. Because in this passage, we see the two sides of God. We see the character of what? Of compassion. The, compar the character of grace. That God is slow to anger with us. He's abounding in love and he continually forgives you and I in our wickedness and our rebellion. He continues to do that again and again and again. But in the same very moment, the same piece of scripture, God also says, I will not stand for your injustice. I will not stand for your sins and I will punish you. But in the same moment I punish you, Know that I love you and know that I'll forgive you. And in the same moment that you guys are forgiven, you're going to sin again. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to hold you accountable to that in his love and his grace. And he's going to forgive you for that. And so God continues to wash us again and again and again. So we're going to read this together. And when we're done, I'm going to just take a moment and say, just reflect on it. And then when Dave's ready, he could start playing. But I, I want this to sink in for, for you guys. So let's read this together. Ready? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, meaning love to thousands and forgiving thousands Sorry, forgiving, uh, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Just take a moment and let that sink in.